everyone. Welcome to the Mass Construction Show with today's guest, Lieutenant Chris Towski with the Cambridge Fire Department. I'm your host, Joe Kelly, and this is a podcast about all things construction in Massachusetts and beyond. In today's episode, Lieutenant Towski brings a unique perspective, having served in the Firehouse, the Fire Prevention Division, and now part of the Office of Emergency Preparedness and Coordination for the City of Cambridge. Outside of his day job, he sits on the Technical Committee for NFPA 241, Safeguarding Construction, and NFPA 855, Energy Storage Systems, as well as serving as the first Vice President of the Fire Prevention Association of Massachusetts. With all this involvement and experience, we were able to cover a lot of ground, and you'll gain some insight on what substantial changes we may be seeing in the next edition of NFPA 241. Enjoy the show. Hey, Chris. Welcome to the Mass Construction Show. Thank you, Mr. Kelly. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Um, So, Chris, you are a lieutenant with the Cambridge Fire Department in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. in that capacity, and I, I, the reason I'm being so specific about this is you do a number of things, and we're going to talk about them as we move through today, about technical committees and associations and things. But as far as Cambridge Fire goes, um, what is your capacity there, and in what way does it interface with uh, people in construction? Currently, right now, I serve as a fire lieutenant in the Emergency Preparedness and Coordination Office. That's a new role for me. Mm-hmm. Um, what it's pulling in is construction sites, how we're going to be looking at them on emergency management perspective, in addition to the compliance, code compliance side of it. So we got that track going. Um, I've left the Fire Prevention Bureau, still doing some fire prevention things, I mean, as we all do in the fire service, but I left it officially after serving just about 12 years doing that okay. out of my 24 years. Okay. So... First 12, 11 years, firehouse, firefighter, responding. Then you moved, You made the shift into fire prevention, and that's where you really started getting involved on the construction side? Correct. Well, I, I did my first 10 years almost to the day riding fire trucks, got promoted, and then landed into a staff position. And that was the changing point for me, was mm-hmm. pulling in from background stuff, how I was a good fit with the construction stuff. And get into the code compliancy on the fire, you know, fire code, fire safety stuff, and tied it together. And it's taken <laughs> just twelve years to get there, but it's been a okay. work in progress. And when you say background, so you were also a licensed electrician, correct? So you had the fire services, fire safety knowledge. You have some construction knowledge with on the electrical side. It seemed like it was a good fit. Um, and you were doing what? on the fire prevention side you were doing plan review you were doing what enforcement how did that how did that right. kind of look? It, it, it's it's a it's a whole box of stuff but yes what i was trying to what i improved on was um being good with the plan review side of it um not necessarily white gloving folks on compliance but made sure that they did match things up with how the building codes and the fire codes you know called out for it so Okay. Um, now, you said the new role, which is more focused on emergency management, emergency response kind of stuff. Is there any, um, would you look, are you guys looking at all at responding to construction sites as part of that? That's one thing that I'm bringing to this office is pulling in the construction site compliance and also getting more into the weeds of working with the contractors and the owners on 
the true meaning of the plans that they're so graciously doing for us to making sure that they do play out, you know, and they match up to when we respond, you know, for things like having the access available and what yeah. have you. So you're referring to construction fire safety plans, mm-hmm. kind of commonly referred to as a 241 plan sometimes. Uh, I know you're definitely much more in the camp of calling it a construction fire safety plan, but for people who right. haven't made that connection yet, I say it. Um, and that is stemming from, you know, fires like the Deutsche Bank fire in New York and um, places where things went bad responding to construction sites. So this is about trying to say, okay, you're going to put this plan in place, but how do we make sure um, that the communication is there between fire services and things are done right? Is that what's... Exactly. My, my term, the implementation side of it. Hmm. Making sure that the folks that what they said they were going to do they actually have a way of doing it and to see, you know, it's not not just a one-way street. It's not just making sure that they're doing what they said they're going to do, but to see if there are things that we can also do on our end to make it a little bit better for them yeah. as they transition into this. Yeah, and I know this is a new role, so I, I imagine you're still going to be working out the, the kinks and the specifics, but what does that look like? Um, so challenging. Um, because it's also a culture change in the fire service side too. So it's convincing folks above my pay grade on the important side of it. So that's probably one of the key things is trying to do it and me trying to do it quickly, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to get things done smoothly and timely. Yeah. So do you kind of envision looking at construction fire safety plans when they come in? to through prior through fire prevention and then saying okay this is a pretty complicated project we have going on here you know at that point maybe you might go out and call somebody in or speak to them say hey let's meet on out on site and talk about this how does just right. that how, how would the actual machinations of all that no that, work? That, that's a great um leading what working so closely with you folks you know what all the great work that you've done and making the relationships over the last four years has been smoother for me so people know to reach out. So the goal now is to target the bigger projects. Um, this is going to dovetail and go smoothly with the fire prevention office, hopefully. I mean, those folks are still going to have a hand, keep an eye on compliance, but on the smaller scale stuff that they'll be reviewing smaller plans and, and things that really don't get into the technical side of it. Mm-hmm. But on the grand scale, will be things that will be falling into my plate. Okay, so there becomes a delineation where fire prevention group is, you know, continuing to do what they've always done. Um, but when it comes to the construction fire safety plans, if it becomes a greater scope, starts getting more complicated, more time consuming, more involved, more variables where the coordination could be right. difficult and when fire services responds, maybe there's more of a hazard or more for them to know, you'll get involved with more of those things. Is that exactly. kind of how it... Yes, exactly. That, that kind of sums it up pretty well. It's, that's where we're at and the vision that we're looking at right now. Okay. That's great. And now, do you see that? Um, there's a lot of... I know there's a lot of challenge challenges in our industry when you have multiple general contractors working on the same site. Mm. Because whether it's a mixed use or there's a corn shell happening and tenant fit outs, 
do you feel like that falls into the category where you start to get concerned, I'll say, or that we should probably be paying more attention? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's an area of, you know, keeping a closer watchful eye on. Hmm. If someone is working in Cambridge, you think they should, like, would you want them to reach out to you or do you want to wait or, or should they really be waiting to hear from you? Oh, no. I, I think it'd be great if they found me, um, bring, get me, you know, on their radar. And I think that'd be a much smoother way of doing it. Okay. So if folks are looking, they've got a sizable, complicated project in Cambridge, uh, reach out to you Absolutely. and say, hey, let's start talking about this early. Absolutely. Um, is there any type of a formal process that the, yet? I know you're a couple of months into this, so. No. Um, I think what's been happening to date has been working pretty well. Um, as the word spreads and as people are catching on, they're, they're, they're making the phone calls or shooting the emails and putting some time aside that fits in everybody's schedules and we just, you know, sit. I think what will be, it's going to be tough for the ground ups, but I think what's going to probably work is to transition from having the meetings, what I customarily had in my own office, mm -hmm. the former office, and moving those into sites. Let's get out to the site and let's really see what's going on type approach. Mm -hmm. But that's obviously going to be, you know, things that aren't coming out of the ground, you know, right right on the onset but as as we go even those projects as they get to a certain point to start looking at the maintenance side of it the housekeeping side of it yeah now do you just have a kind of a constant dialogue with the fire prevention folks or like how's the information if, if someone doesn't know to reach out how's the information getting to you as far as what's kind of critical oh. It's pretty now, amazing. I've worked in government before, so I know communication is not always what it uh, should be. But Right, right. And, but ironically enough, um, things have a way of finding where they need to go, you know, mm -hmm. naturally. Um, I do, you know, the folks that I left in the former office, we, we speak regularly. Um, we try to all be in the same page. Of course, we're going to miss stuff. We're going to, you know, cross paths here and there. But for the most part... Um, it's 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 pretty good. They'll they'll reach out, and even for those folks, I gotta say, some of the stuff has gotten very technical for them. So it's nice for them to even have me as a resource on that mm -hmm. end too. Yeah. Okay, I think I, I want just one more thing before we kind of move on to the next phase, <laughs> which is, um, what's your thought around and maybe how you're implementing it or hope to implement it or how Cambridge implements it versus maybe what you personally think is the right way to do it. Um, you know, you have fire prevention. You're now in emergency management. Those are two different touch points for a contractor, right? They might have to communicate with your group, might have to communicate with fire prevention, probably both potentially. How do you guys loop in, or I should say, how does fire services or how does the fire department loop in the local firehouse as part of this communication? Because, uh, and I'll, I'll get on my soapbox a little bit. It seems like it's great for a contractor to have the discussion with a fire prevention group in whatever community, mm. but the fire prevention group is not the one responding. Cool. So how do we, how do we, I'm saying collectively, solve that and maybe how do you how do you guys handle it and how do you think it should be handled right. how, do, how does that happen where we have this great plan when the fire services respond we're gonna have x y and z happen but 
no one told the person in the firehouse who's showing up on the truck any of this information. So how does that kind of play out? Well, right now, two parallel roads are being traveled because we actually have that in discussion for NFPA 241 for the changes on how to tie in another document, NFPA 1620. That's for um, uh, pre-fire planning for fire companies. But what we've had historically in Cambridge alone is we've always had a good policy for the local fire companies to travel within their jurisdictions and be observant, looking for stuff, and you know, having the green light to knock on doors and say, hey, I'm so-and-so and all that. What we've done to assist that on our end is we've given them a tool. And now that we've gone to the online permitting, we gave them a tool through the iPad system that they have a construction checklist that they can do. And it's very brief overview, but it'll assist them when they go there so they can start a dialogue. And then we've also worked it out as with a lot of the larger players on the construction end to let them know this is coming. You know, most likely you're going to have fire companies coming through and, you know, we work for a working groups. So you could have four times, you know, four times a week, you could have certain fire companies making periodic stops. And we did try to balance and make sure that it doesn't impact the construction end. Mm-hmm. But they've, the construction end folks have been great. They've really been for the most part, open arm, welcoming, come anytime, you know, we'll show you everything. You know, that hasn't really bothered them too much. Mm. Yeah, because when you say working group, you're talking about essentially shifts, right? Yes. You have four different shifts. So it's great if one team goes and walks the site, but they're not the one that's going to respond. So you really want to cycle everyone in the firehouse through that site so they're familiar with it, or at least whoever would be the commanding officer when they respond. Exactly. Kind of yeah. Yep. Okay. So it's a good tie-in because you mentioned through 241 that you're exploring pre-fire plans. Right. One of the other things you do is you're on, and if I'm using the wrong language, please correct me. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a technical committee member on NFPA 241. Correct. Uh, not only, but for, for now on 241, um, what does that mean, right? Um, and for people that aren't aware, uh, and I, I guess from a perspective of um, many people might think that the ICC or NFPA writes the code. There's staff there and they yeah. write the code, um, employees of those agencies. But uh, that's not really what happens. What, what happens as far as when code is getting written and adopted, what does that process look like? Okay. I'll start from the beginning. Currently, what I sit now is I sit as a technical committee representative, and I'm sponsored by the International Association of Firefighters. That was a pretty recent transition. Prior to that, when I applied, I applied independently under the Cambridge Fire Department. Mm-hmm. So that first application period, I go under. I was under an enforcer program. Now I'm under the labor supporting labor. The way the technical committees are pretty much structured, uh, they're into stakeholder work groups. You have labor. If a, if a particular document needs that, you'll have labor, user, maintainer, installer, uh, manufacturer, insurance industry will be there, enforcers. Uh, they might engineers, be, maybe, like in engineering. They could maybe. be. Um, I don't know what category they'd fall in. Usually um, engineering would fall into like um, subject matter experts. There's a category for them. I think there's about eight, ten different um, use group, you know, classifications on that. Mm-hmm. 
And then what happens, a committee gets structured by balance so that there's no one like entity that could, um, you know, be overpowering in voting. All right. So, for example, there couldn't be too many people from the manufacturing side that would be all about promoting their product. Right. Right. That would be balanced. Out. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. But the balancing doesn't have to be equal. So, in other words, there could only be maybe two enforcers and there could be 10 from the manufacturer, but it still qualifies as being balanced because other areas would be pulled in. You know, there may be maybe four subject matter experts, whatever it is. So it doesn't have to be two enforcers, two manufacturer across the board, but there is a balance. So at the end of the day, there's no one entity that, you know, has like 51%. And okay. I think this is you know, whatever, 33% is what it has to do. But anyway... And what, what is, is it 51% is the vote or is it no, a, is it a simple majority? Or? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, we'd have to get into the, the rules mm -hmm. of how the NFPA is structured on their end. But they do have it, it. They let us know every time at a technical committee. They let us know, you know, the balancing and, you know, mm -hmm. how the, the majority voting works. I don't think it's, it's not 51%. I think it's more, there has to be two-thirds in agreeance. So okay. what is sixty six percent? Yeah, so, yeah. Because a lot of times, that, the... yeah, a lot of times that will be the case. Like that's what a lot of voting and zoning, at, at, like town yeah. committees, it has to be either two thirds or three quarters right. to get something to pass. Right. And sometimes it's just a simple majority. But and I think that all stems back to how it works out. So there's no overbalance of one particular entity being represented and you know wanting to swing votes. Hmm. No, it's a good checks and balances, right? Because if you have to have a substantial swath of the group agreeing it's not just kind of hey if i convince just enough to get me over 50 percent, it becomes code right you've got to you've got to get a sizable portion of the group right. the committees they try to cap how many members are on there mm -hmm. um 30 is about a comfortable area that i think they consider to be and other than that it's just you know you never get anything done of course but mm -hmm. i think that's what they figured to be there i don't think we have quite 30 yet on 241 but I think there's, as this is spreading, there's more folks that are looking to sign on to it. Interested, yeah. Okay. So committee members meet. Uh, do committee members make proposals? Oh, for yes. Code changes? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then there's also what this, um, I forget the actual term, but you can have public Public input. inputs? Yep. Yep. Um, so general public can say, hey, we recommend this go into uh, the next edition. Technical committee members can make recommendations. Yeah. And then is there like, is it a dialogue? Is it phased? How does that? Oh, yeah. It's pretty well structured. Um, currently, for example, with 241, we just had a pre-first draft revision meeting. That was just the, the chair calling everybody because there hasn't been a group meeting in such a long time. Mm -hmm. So we just met in New Orleans the end of February, spent a day and a half in, in committee um, discussing how the document is and where it should be going and things like that. Out of that spawned great discussion, um, good presentations. Personally, I had just about 21 different items to touch on how I think we can improve the document all received very well by committee. Um, the committee broke into task groups. Eight different task groups were formed. I happen to chair one of them for temporary heating, and we're going to include air conditioning, temporary heating and cooling. We're going to, I'm going to 
change the name. I think um, I'm playing around with the term now called construction period instead of the term temporary. But outside of that, we have a task group. Um, I'm pretty much on every single one of them. But we have one that's going to be formed for qualifications for fire prevention program manager, um, fire safety plans. Oh, we have a whole bunch of things that came out of that, um, that where these task groups all get formed. So now we break up into these little task groups. Um, there'll be a point in, we're going to have a phone discussion on May 3rd, um, the committee chairs, the task group chairs with the committee chair. And then we'll transition into probably something for May or June to give reports. Uh, we'll be looking at actually having our first draft revision meeting. They're looking at, we're looking at October, sometime in October right now. Don't know where it's going to be. Mm -hmm. But that will be where we start taking some of the public inputs that have already come in. And right now, and I think it's more structured as a public comment phase because the public inputs, actually, um, forgive me, it's for public input, input, turns into public comments after we receive the inputs and start what is, you know, some of them come in with zero qualifications. You know, people come in, well, yeah, you want to make a change, but you don't tell us the substantation, you know, and what the correct change should be. So things like that get dismissed. But some of them come in, we chew on them, we see, you know, and decide what we like. And that's how it is structured. So it's not going into further your question. It isn't the NFPA themselves that decide the content. It is decided on folks that are... A representative of... Yeah. That, a cross-section of the industry. Right. And usually, like on uh, this committee, you know, we have folks that represent insurance side of it. We have hospitals... I think John Hopkins University Makes is sense. represented. So that's going to take it when we start looking at campus planning. Mm -hmm. You know, take 241 into another dimension when we go that path. Um, some fire service reps, um, sprinkler, fire alarm, those folks have some representation there, which is good. Yeah. If we didn't say it yet, so NFPA 241 is the standard for safeguarding construction. Construction, uh, alteration, and demolition. demolition. Yep. Okay. So... I think people are getting a decent idea what that process looks like. Eventually, you're going to get some type of a draft. It will go out to the general public, gets feedback. There'll eventually be a final voting mechanism. Mm -hmm. uh, and really, so once you get those teams, they you the teams give that information back to the NFPA. They put it into a document. Staff members put it into a document. Voted on. If it gets approved, it gets into the next edition, right? Typically, the the, the other layer there is the standards council. Once okay. things go from technical committee, there's a standards council. They meet three times a year, and that's when they do their voting on things. Hmm. Um, and then there's also the NFPA conference. That's when they have the very large technical meeting. That's when things go to notices of intent to make a motion. All right. Like that. So but, not to we're going to just. Completely put everyone to sleep now. Um, <laughs> but for the code people, listen up. Um, so can you ex explain those other layers? So you said there's the technical committee, then there's the standards. Standards council. And what do they do? That's the hmm, the governing body within the NFPA made up, again, of general um, independent stakeholders. Okay. Some might be, generally not an NFPA employee, but, you know, they've been associated with the NFPA for a long time. But they're the folks that are, um, 
the receivers of the technical committee work. Yeah. And then they have some decisions that they make also, and they, they can overrule certain things if they think it's not something that warrants being let out to the public to be okay. used. Do you think that, how often does that happen pretty often? Or? Well, I know the Standards Council, I know they meet three times a year. Hmm. Um, between that and then, as I mentioned, the NFPA conference, it's hmm. every June. Yeah. Is, but, those are when a lot of decisions are made. Okay. For the most part, though, do they take the majority of the recommendations from the technical committee? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. It's not like they're rewriting the majority no typically what would what would probably swing them would be something political you know that they weren't anticipating that committee or wouldn't be in the scope of the committee work Mm -hmm. so something on the idea of that and hence that's how 855 was born so almost if if you guys start overreaching um the scope they might say okay that's outside of your scope correct let's not do that um i'm trying to think of what else could be a place where they would step in or say could would they be the ones that would look at if there's overlap between other codes that would cause a problem not necessarily i think there might have been a time i think the standards council has just been simply overwhelmed by that task i think they've broken that down to the staff liaisons which put out staff liaisons are typically a fire protection engineer that works for the nfpa and they're assigned not just one technical committee, you know, the mm-hmm. document to work on, they're assigned many. And I think the the torch was handed to those folks to say, all right, start doing a little bit more correlation with your own document to fix maybe some of the problems, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. you know, to straighten things out, so to, to wean out the overlap. The only reason I mentioned that is I was just at a, a seminar the other day and the NFPA 13 liaison was commenting on that of all the work that he's been doing independently to go through each individual chapter of NFPA 13, which is a sprinkler yeah. code, and to, to why is that there, why is it here, and to wean things out. Yeah, so I think that's what they've done to their staff liaisons. Okay. I think for people that aren't familiar, that don't really get involved with code too often, but um, it's a common issue in code, which is... Um, overlap okay even within massachusetts we have you know for instance you could have the electrical code that says to do one thing and the building code says to do something else or in a lot of cases the plumbing code might say you need x number of fixtures in a bathroom and the building code says you need a different number so that conflict in code can be a real problem uh, as you can imagine because you're now trying to implement this whether it's design or construction and you have two different codes telling you two different things. So right. um, it's always a struggle. So I'm sure NFPA has struggle vetting it. I know the ICC has trouble right. vetting those things. They do a pretty good job. Right. Um, I think locally in Massachusetts, um, we struggle more right. with it because we have a lot of amendments and different governing bodies and fiefdoms that you know are, have their areas of control. So it kind of creates a problem. But... Yeah, that's a, that's a big thing within the code process. Well, I can kind of give you some insight because hmm. just within our own 241 document, staying on that one for a second, we've broken up into task groups. So pretty much a task group is going to be given a chapter to almost rewrite, to rework. Mm-hmm. Sometimes 
there's not the greatest communication that goes on between that task group and another task group book in a different chapter. Where it makes it, where I'm going with this, what makes it even more complicated when you get into the sprinkler and especially the electrical code, they have um, code making panels that make up a lot of their chapters. So you, there's sometimes some folks never ever talk to each other. You know, mm. it gets really, really thick with those individuals. Um, and again, that's where the staff liaison is coming in to be that first receiver to say, okay, well, I saw what you did. Well, I also saw what they did. All right, making sure that they correlate. Hmm. Just get that, at least catch all the big things, right? Let's right. clean all this up. Yes, there's going to be some small details we have to figure out, but at least do a first pass of the obvious so you're not blatantly saying one thing in one document and a different thing in another because that's and, a problem. And you see that with 241. On 241, we have sprinklers covered in two different chapters, Chapter 7 and Chapter 8. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you get into underground structures, we got it covered again. Um, I don't, I think what we're going to be looking at is adding another chapter. At least one more chapter will be on alterations. And I think mm -hmm. that's where we're really going to start giving better guidance for impairments of systems. So mm -hmm. I think that's probably what it needs to happen with this particular document is to break it up chapters for the work that's being done. And I think within each chapter, it will probably point fingers back to a chapter that covers maybe sprinklers and says, you know, as long as in accordance with that and in addition to what else is written in this chapter type thing. Okay. I think that's what I, that's just one vision I think I see okay. happening with 241. All right. Now let's get into it because um, I'm sure people would be interested maybe what's coming down the pike. Absolutely. Um, what are some potential changes that we might be seeing coming to NFPA 241? Well, I just mentioned, I think we'll see a new chapter for buildings under alteration. Um, I think we'll see that covered. And I don't, I'm sure there'll be other things, but I think we'll definitely see a lot of... Um, focal point put in for impairments of systems. Um, I think what we will see is a restructuring of the document, taking out the responsibilities and the who should do what out of the middle of the document and put it into the front end on chapter four. Because as you know, that's how the document's pretty much structured. Chapter one is your administrative stuff, mm -hmm. chapter two being the reference documents, chapter three being definitions. And then chapter four is really the start. Starts, yeah. And I think that's what we'll see. We'll see owner's responsibilities. I think we'll see general contractor's responsibilities because that got moved out of seven, found its way into one. But I think we'll see it probably dovetail back into chapter four and clean it up that fashion. Hmm. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of emphasis on qualifications for the fire prevention program manager. That's, as you know, Mr. Mm -hmm. Kelly, that's one thing problem. that's... Yes, um, there's been zero, zero guidance there. I think we're going to see some stuff take place on large wood area. I don't know what the numbers, if any numbers, but you'll see things that would probably normally at the end of the project that would have fire separation, you'll see those separation demarcation points find their way in during the framing period. Mm -hmm. So instead of a known one, two hour rated wall backing up bathrooms, you know, for whatever the area is, you'll probably see maybe 
a different product that's weather resilient find its way in also be you know fire resistive also and you'll find that be a layer going in and of course the MEPs the mechanical electrical and plumbing sensitive to that but those aren't typically going to be walls that they would be penetrating anyway and we've kind of had that initial discussion with, with the 241 committee so far um, if they are, I'm sure they'll figure out how they're going to make the penetrations and seal them up. Hmm. It's just to give some type of slowing down point from the wood frame should it get an ignition and as it travels to slow it down to give at least the fire departments a, a place to, you know, a chance. get caught up. Yeah, yeah, a better chance to, and, and the fire department, you know, not just to... To, to satisfy their jobs, but also to assist the owners in, in, you know, how much money's been put into that project, mm. you know, to slow that down, to slow down the loss. Yeah. I mean, locally, we saw the building in Waltham. I mean, how many total buildings do you recall? I don't know what Waltham was. Uh, five? Five or six? The number of buildings. And yeah, yeah, if you at least had some breaks in there, now we run into the problem, which is fire can get around it and all that type of things but at least if you're slowing down the process and i think that's a good idea what you just mentioned which was almost like if you have that back-to-back bathrooms or whatever almost build the wall in the middle and then you have two other walls on either side of it essentially right so you build that one hour break and then you just build the two walls on either side traditionally right that seems like a pretty good right and the discussion came up about, well, with fire spread rising and all that, you know, the ceiling assemblies aren't going to be rated. We're discussing that. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, maybe that personally, maybe that's just better. Let, let that whole portion be consumed, <laughs> burn itself out, or mm-hmm. however that works, but then the rest can survive as it goes. Mm-hmm. And that would include putting in whether temporary, again, construction period, or it won't, I won't see, the, you won't see the permanent, but an interim door that's also a fire rated that within that penetration, because normally like the hallway connectors, you know, you'd see something like that. So you'd see doors finding their way in to the projects earlier and they'd be like a construction grade, you know, because they, I'm sure they'd be damaged along the way. But yes. They'd be put in place that should there be fire spread that they'd be able to function and assist with that rated wall. Yeah, I mean, that's been a lot of the angst with the current situation, which is, you know, the document says to accelerate life safety systems, including fire-rated walls and doors. But the problem is you start swinging, especially when you get to bigger buildings, you start swinging all the stairwell doors, and you have contractors going in and out, loading materials and uh, all day long, beating the crap out of these doors and frames, and then by the time you're done, it's almost they're not functional anymore, you know. So, right. um, you know, maybe that's just a cost that has to happen up front, and that's where you have this temporary type, right? You know, grade. But you're, you're right, and I think your phrasing makes a lot of sense. And if that, if that's how the committee's been looking at it, it's really about massing, right? Yes. <clears throat> not necessarily just height, but what is the volume or square footage or how and how do we manage right controlling that because a lot of people when they think about life safety and fire safety they automatically go to the place of height but all this podium construction that we're seeing issues with are not very i mean relatively speaking are not very tall buildings right but they're massive right and they can be and in some cases it becomes neighborhoods right absolutely um 
So that's really, that's got to be a struggle. Do you guys look at mass timber at all and the potential of that? Well, as you know, in the 2019 edition, um, a chapter was added, the last go-around, chapter 12 was added for mass timber. That is also going to get new updated eyes on it because that was knowing that something was coming down the pike through the ICC side of it and... I guess it was the first bite at the apple. It was the first stuff that went out there, so there'd be something in the standard. But now knowing a little bit more on what the ICC has done, we can match up what we did. And it's a little bit out of my specialty mm-hmm. on that side of it. Um, but nonetheless, um, it's going to get looked at to make sure that it matches up for those folks. You know, okay. we, we had something that really didn't have any height limit to it for example but now we know that the icc is limited to 18 stories so i think we'll be able to match things up to make it again you more user friendly for folks that are doing the mass timber yeah um and for folks that don't know so what chris is referring to is i want to say it's the 2021 edition of the ibc i want to say yes i think the 2021 2021 edition of the ibc is now going to look at mass timber which covers cross-laminated timber or uh, nail-laminated timbers, all this, all these engineered lumbers of sizable um, dimension. It's your typical Type 4 constructor that yeah. it's looking at, yeah. but it's just done differently. Yeah. And historically, though, they didn't recognize the manufactured stuff as heavy timber. It had to be full, you know, mm. you know old right. timber construction. And now what they're saying is there's going to be a tiered approach where you can build, I want to say it's like 12, 16, 18. There's three levels based off of your level of protection, sprinkler, fire rating, all that other stuff. There is the potential that if you put all those measures in place that you can build as high as 18 stories right. out of mass timber. So just for, not for you, but for everyone else that's mm-hmm. listening, that's what Chris is referring to about getting in line with the IBC. So. The intent is that NFPA one will look at that language and make sure that you guys at least align. Right, two forty one. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Yep. We, I mean, so, we had some stuff going. Um, modular construction was something that came up the committee. Mm. It wasn't my topic because I don't. I mean, I've seen it here, but I haven't seen it. What the envision is? Is this is you know expanding on the uh, the connex boxes and how that industry side of it is using those containers in the building environment mm-hmm. so there's some stuff going there um we'll see some expansion on the standpipes um one of my charging things is not just one usable stair having standpipes especially on these very widespread they'll all mm-hmm. have standpipes available um, so those are just a few things that so you we think, touched on. If I can, let me pick your brain a bit. Or like building marking. Let's come back to that one. Okay. Um, Go ahead. So when you're talking about standpipe and multiple, meaning that if you're getting to the point where you're 100 feet or 200 feet between stairwells, or there's going to be some probably cutoff that says if you're if the linear feet distance is greater than this, you need to add an additional standpipe. Is that probably how it works or yeah in short 
at the end of the day, when the building is complete for certificate of occupancy, it's going to have standpipes on all those stairs. I think that's what we'll see going in sooner. Instead of just folks abiding by the letter of the law says, oh, geez, I only have to do one, one. temporary standpipe at this time. It'll get, hopefully we can get this out where the construction industry can grab it a little sooner and say, oh, okay, well, let's start anticipating getting all our standpipes in sooner. Now, yes, there will be some things on how many fire department connections and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. There'll be some things to work through. But if we can get the awareness out, but it's just for that reason. It's one usable standpipe going up to the second floor with maybe 150 feet of hose that somebody's lugged up there, and yet the span to travel is now 900 feet. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's not... It's not feasible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not practical in that fashion. And you know what, though? Um, in writing these plans... I have yet seen anybody push back on early installation of a standpipe. Every time they're like, I have to put it in anyway. It's not that much. Certain things are like, okay, logistically, that's becomes a problem with the way I want to build this building. It, it's the the issue. Nobody seems to have an issue whenever I'm saying, hey, can we get a standpipe in early here? Even sometimes when you're asking them to go a little above and beyond saying, okay, we're looking for an impairment plan. You want to do this, do that. Can you get us an extra standpipe, or can you get the standpipe in before you start doing this? And right. every time the answer is yes. Right. I mean, the the issue, twofold, sticking with the standpipes has been the location or a fight upon the connection because mm-hmm. it hasn't worked out. They haven't progressed long enough in the construction to locate the fight upon the connection where it would where it would go permanently because mm-hmm. the wall isn't in place or whatever the case is. So I think that, but I think we can work things out with temporary fight upon connections, but of course it's going to be a, a cost change, you know, for owners and things like that. And then the other side of it that hasn't been practical, and I don't see it surviving um, as much as folks would have probably hoped, I'll probably get a lot of nays on this, but is sprinklers. Um, I think sprinklers will probably stick to the pathway of kind of where we are now when sprinklers are ready to come on when it's practical at a later stage i just i'm not seeing or or hearing a lot of good feedback that's saying yeah it makes total sense to bring sprinklers into the project when it's open wood it's i know it's changed some folks with their design on what they're doing and you know omitting the C PVC piping and going with, you know, black iron, galvy yeah. right out the chute. Um, but there's so much other thing that, you know, with it making it a dry system, it can't handle the air pressures. And, you know, once you give the water, it's, there's just so many things that just aren't lining up to, to make that be as feasible as folks would have liked it to be. So I think we'll just have to adjust and figure out a different way on how it gets protected more so in that interim just a a point of clarification for the folks that aren't on top of this Mm -hmm. um what chris is referring to is there's been as of late a few projects within massachusetts that are installing sprinkler systems as the floors are being built in wood construction and what you're saying is you don't see that going into i'm going to sneeze in a second no bless you (coughs) thank you you don't see that going to the point where that becomes the norm. Exactly. Uh, Being mandated. Uh, not not getting that fuzzy, warm feeling at this point. Yep. I, you know, maybe the technology just isn't there to support 
that side of the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, what I would like to see, though, is when we do get to the latter stages where there's been so much, not pushback, but natural delay, if you will, for lack of a better term, on getting sprinklers on, I'd like to see that corrected. I'd like to get the insurance folks on board that, you know, if there's a water mishap, that's far less than having a fire mishap. I think they do understand that, but I think they need to see it a little bit differently. Um, getting the sprinkler fitters more comfortable to want to leave valves on at a later stage, getting the construction managers and the ownership to want to be more receptive to that, to, to be able to manage crews coming in so they're not whacking sprinkler heads and stuff like that you know I, i'd like to see a turnaround take place on that because i mean you i'm sure you've seen it mr kelly that the delay you know yeah it's we talked about it in committee and and the individual representing the sprinkler industry knows it's at least six months that he has been ready and another change that needs to happen too is a, one reason that they don't want to bring it on is because they don't have any fire alarm support. So if there is a mishap, nothing's there to pick it up on it. You yeah. Know? So. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. For, I have a lot of things. The reason I'm mumbling and stumbling is a few things. First off, for the people that um, may or may not understand what you said there, the concern is on a sprinkler system, there is a water flow alarm. So if water starts flowing because a sprinkler head went off the fire alarm will pick it up and notify yeah, somebody let somebody know yep early on in the project if the fire alarm system is not complete or it's not tied to a central station water could be flowing and nobody undetected. knows about it undetected and it could be on uh, that's an obvious problem correct um that's there are certainly those individual issues with it which i think are solvable right there are now wireless water flow devices and things like that you can put on and get alarms going to a phone or to a Ooh. central station. There's, I, think, I think we can solve those individual problems. But I think at the end of the day, it's math. The insurance companies are looking at it and saying, it's more likely I'm going to have water damage than fire damage. And they're just... They're doing math, mm -hmm. and they're saying, Agreed. what's my biggest exposure? My biggest exposure is from water. So they're not going to be pushing for that water to go on. And maybe I'm wrong. I would, If I'm wrong, I would love to hear from somebody on that side that feels differently. Um, but I think that's our driver. You know, it's driver for sprinkler fitters. They don't want to turn it on because they don't want that responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, the contractor, same thing. They're worried about somebody hitting the sprinkler head with a lift or what have you. Um and even the, the fire officials accepting systems that are considered not compliant. Uh, we There's very large issue. Yeah. Very large issue. And no it's, doubt. it's kind of a rat's nest. And then there's also, I do know that there are construction companies or people, construction professionals that are afraid to turn on a system without the permission of the fire department. Because mm -hmm. there's been, you know, times where they go out and then the fire services shows up and says, who told you you could put this on, blah, 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 and they're screaming at them. So there's so many variables going on here that I'm with you. If there's water in the system, like the, the fire in Dorchester that we had here locally, right. that sprinkler system should have been turned on. It, it was not turned on. It could have been turned on. And instead, they ripped the thing down to the ground. 
a total loss. Slab on grade, tire structure that was a week from testing for final turnover, now got ripped to the ground because water wasn't on. Um, The key here, though, is that 241, we're recognizing it. Mm. And at least I think if we can put some language into the the document Mm. to help folks just take a little bit of that edge off of each of those respective disciplines, you know, the insurance, the fire official and all that. I think we can get there. It's going to be a work in progress. But I think if we can get something in print to work that out and, you know, dovetailing into that is it was brought up to our chair to reach out to the NFPA 70, um, excuse me, the NFPA 72, the fire alarm, alarm. and the 13, those chairs to work closer on that. And then we talked about how we get the message spread to the fire officials and the building officials, if the building officials are keeping a watchful eye on these fire protection features, Mm. but on the fire officials too, it's okay to accept something that, which we're avoiding the word not compliant because it's going to be compliant with the installation. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to have the hangers, it's going to have the clips and everything, you know, the right size wire. It'll be compliant on that, but it's not going to be that normal at the end of the day compliant. doesn't have the affidavit from the mechanical engineer or right. whatever engineer saying, here, it's completed, I've checked it, turn it over. Very good. Correct. Um, but it's functional. Yes. It's in it may not be complete, but it's better than having nothing. Correct. Right? So why don't we release that? Is And that's the big question, right? And right. that's what you're saying where hopefully 241 can give people cover on that. Yes. Right? And exactly. I mean, we can start, you know, we're going to have to kick it around through committee. But, yep, we start small. Just get something in there where people can start, you know, and people will figure out what to do with it, you know, mm-hmm. as they go on. But at least we can give them something because right now – Everybody's got a complete hands-off approach, and certainly not doing anything for the industry. Right. Okay. So so far we talked about um, some clarification on fire prevention program manager qualifications. And for people that don't know, within NFPA two forty one, there's a section that requires that each project will have a person, a fire prevention project manager, that will program manager that will oversee the construction fire safety. So there's going to be some more clarification on qualifications. Um, there's going to be addressing of the size of wood structures, potentially something on sprinkler. Um, there's going to be a breakout for alterations to mm-hmm. separate them from new construction. Um, and then you started to mention signage, yes. right? Yes. Signage is an area that I think, because that's always dear to my heart also, is something that will capture a little bit better. Mostly, you know, now under the International Association of Firefighters, that I'm looking out for firefighter safety. So there is, through NFPA 170 and NFPA 1, both in the annex material now, they have some very good language and very good looking appearance for signage. And it's to get that up early in the project. And it's not intended to, it's intended, we'll put it this way, it's intended for the responding firefighters to make a good or a better judgment call, just having that more heads-up notice. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, Massachusetts has one that's a little bit more refined. There's an X and a slash posting. I don't mm-hmm. know if you recall yep. those. They were typically for a property that was abandoned, that was kind of just withering away. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done that pretty well in Cambridge. Not so much the, the slash. We've taken the full X, you know, the interior and the exterior compromise concept, and 
worked it out with construction folks and saying, hey, this is what we're looking for. And again, it's all it means is that it's going to give our folks a tool to make a better judgment call. It's not saying that they're writing off the property and not mm-hmm. going to attempt to put the fire out, but it gives them a heads up saying, oh, geez, the stairs might not be there where we expect them to be. And it's just to give that type of earlier notification because that's another thing that's taken place, um, especially with the exi- obviously with the existing buildings. They can look completely fine on the outside, and the insides are completely gone. Yep. You know, and it's not not sometimes not all completely gone, but stairs get reconfigured, roofing systems are gone. You know, flooring systems are temporarily supported. There's a you know how. Yep. Oh no, I mean I there's a building in the north end. Um, Colin Antonio did it. It was um, an old school. And historically, they had to keep the entire facade. But you went in, it looked like a warehouse, and it was just all diagonal bracing holding the whole thing up. And if, you know, if you've got one of those buildings, you walk in through the front door because there's some stairs there. Right, expecting to find stairs and there's nothing. So it's so that's or expecting that's really, to find a floor and there's not a floor, right? right? I mean, exactly. Um, do you want to explain to people the X and the slash locally what that what that means? The the X posting, um, it's a a sign that gets posted typically above the second floor level. That's the line of sight for responding fire apparatus. I believe Mass is specific about the coloring. I believe it's red it's on a white, white background yeah. or vice versa, white on a red background. It's one or the other, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's specific and it's there intentionally to let the Massachusetts Fire Service know that there's interior and exterior structural compromise. And then there's another version, which is the slash. It's a backslash. And that is basically for interior compromise. It's very difficult to have one without the other. If you're going to have yeah. interior compromise, there's likelihood you're going to have the exterior compromise take place because the walls are just going to implode or blow right. out, whatever the case is going to be. So it's And it's just been easy. Instead of folks buying more science, just, just all we're looking for is the heads up. You know that, that it's there. Yeah, you've got an issue potentially. Right. But what in. what the NFPA has, and this, you know, Massachusetts might, I'm sure, I know they will, if they buy into this when it comes finds its way as into the extract document of NFPA one. The NFPA one also has mass modifications in Chapter ten that pick up the X and slash posting, which is dovetailed right out of what the mass amendments are for the building code side of it. They'll probably just go in mass. They'll use the X and slash. But what the NFPA uses in um, NFPA 170 and in the annex of NFPA 1, they use the classic looking fire. It's called the Firefighters Maltese Cross. You'll see that symbol a lot on mm. badges. This is the symbol right here, Mr. Kelly, with the insert where it says EMS Fire Rescue. Yep. It's that classic um, shield looking design to it. Um, and what it naturally does, if, if I, you know, right. yeah, grab what it. And it naturally uh, does is it allows information to be used in all these fields. Uh, and they use abbreviations in the NFPA document. And one particular will mean for, you know, uh, might be like, almost like you'd see with the gas, the gas symbols. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. So for people that are listening, I'll throw a photo up on Instagram so you can um, see where it. Um, Lieutenant Telsky is talking about with the firefighters cross. Um, so you're saying that's right now, and that's NFPA standard, different than 
Right. And of course, it. NFPA standard being, you know, going into another NFPA standard, it's mm. just dovetail that easy to put that in and let the local jurisdictions, if they buy into it, okay. they can. And, and I was making a note for myself to post that. But so you said it has those four sections so you can provide four different numbers into those numbers. Numbers, letters. Information. They use letters. But yep. yeah, they, they do have specific information on where it goes. Off the top of my head, I don't, I, you know. So top might be exterior, right might be interior, bottom is hazardous chemicals. Exactly. Or, you know. Exactly. you got the concept. Okay. All right. Interesting. I had no idea about that. I'm surprised. I more yeah. I'm surprised it. Mass doesn't use that. Uh, it seems like it would offer more information than an X and a slash. But, okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Anything else on the 241 front that I think that we've hit that probably, you know quite a bit mm-hmm. oh tier levels that was another thing that i had brought up i was looking at it right in front of me um there's you know there's always been this not contention but this confusion if you will about how when does a 241 plan apply and you know what specifications does a particular person have to have so i looked at that and i put some stuff in draft and presented it on a tier one, tier two, tier three, more of an awareness and operational and a technical level. So folks that have, for example, maybe a tier one, and this is just terminology for table talk, Mm -hmm. but say, for example, you're qualified as a tier one, um, a level one fiber prevention program manager, that would allow you to maybe draft and implement a, a level one plan mm-hmm. so you're doing your room over here you know and you want to I don't know you want to take out your smoke detector so that would go into your plan and how you're going to manage your housekeeping with trash removal that would be where you sit mm-hmm. then if there was a particular project that got a little bit out of that level it's out of your wheelhouse yep. then there'd be another layer there and that person would have additional training and then it would also open the door that now that they've had additional training they can do what you've already done on the level one planning, but they can also do a level two planning because it gets a little bit more in depth. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately we'd have the stuff like what we see going on here with consultants going into the real technical end of it. Mm-hmm. And then technical, yep, you can do a level one, level two plan, but you could also do a level three plan. And that would be, again, real technical yeah. way outside of what a person of level one or level two mm-hmm. FPPM could handle. Yeah, so almost like where there are a lot of times you see the language in there that says all applicable codes and standards. So as that job increases, more and more codes and standards apply. Mm. You get into healthcare where you have smoke control, and now you have to have NFPA 99 for healthcare. And that's a whole lot different than an interior renovation of a room, right? And that's where you start talking about levels. And do you think that's going to get the traction i'm giving it my Your best. best shot it's, be it's out there um personally i don't see why it wouldn't because mm-hmm. it's it's a global I- issue it's mm-hmm. not just us here so others are seeing it on other ends you know uh, if we can put again we're not here 241 is not going to solve the world's problems but if we can put framework in there for folks to build off of mm-hmm. i don't see how it could hurt yeah. You know, we'll see what happens when we go into the public inputs and the public comments and see what, you know, decides to stay. Hmm. You know, some things might get 
wordsmithed, make it sound a lot better than me because I'm not the brightest, but make it sound a lot better. And we'll just take it from there. So what I just did, though, is I just, I took, I got 58 individual uh, areas of discussion going right now between the four different technical task groups that I'm on right now. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll see. see plays out. What it, and <clears throat> they're, they're pretty generic. <coughs> you know, a lot of it's through um, the committee work that we, we've done, that we serve Locally. on here, yep. you know, the, the partnership here. So a lot of it has come from that. A lot of it's come from what does the industry want? You know, it's listening to the industry, which that's what I'm trying to, with the background, you know, the construction background, the electrical, being on that level, trying to be back to folks that aren't on that level in the committee. Yeah. You know, maybe. I mean, this, I, I think this is all going to be really exciting. Um, code doesn't get exciting too often, but um, to go from where we were, at least locally here in Massachusetts, um, where it was barely being looked at to where we are right now and as many people that have complaints about where we're at because we're not maybe where everyone would like us to be mm -hmm. um we've come a long way you know i go to a lot of sites and i see a lot of pretty impressive things that i would not have seen through five years ago never mind even three years ago i wouldn't have seen so um you know we're not there but we're doing really well and it seems like it's a little bit of a um hockey stick curve happening here which was like nothing was happening and now all of a sudden we're starting to see a lot of changes happen when it comes to fire safety right um I at mean, least at least locally here right and, and exactly it's local i mean you know that over the last four years um we've branched out from the boston cambridge and how it's migrating and finding its way across the state it's still slow much but it is you know at least uh, the western part of the state, the larger communities, mm -hmm. you know, they're doing Worcester, you know, Springfield, folks like that. Um, it's made it to the colleges, the large campus colleges. So, they, yeah. you know, and then it, word of mouth and the trickle down effect will get to the, yeah. the smaller communities. And you know what? I think it's spreading. I think the amount of wood frame across the country with podium construction has really gotten some attention. Uh, I think I told you prior but you know i was asked to do a webinar on construction fire safety for insurance trade association which was uh, across the u.s it wasn't a local chapter and i did it i'm assuming there's going to be you know 10 15 maybe 25 people that watch the thing because i never watch webinars so i figure nobody else does i think there was 258 people wow. that's awesome so and most of them were not massachusetts folks yeah so People want to hear it. Yeah, I mean, we've made some strides. We've made a lot of strides here locally, um, but I think it's I think it's not just here. I think it's it's everywhere, and I think it's a lot of the podium construction is really. You start seeing a few buildings burned to ground, hundred percent right. under travel. construction. You know that starts to get people's interest. I mean, geez, but, just outside. I mean, from what I put into a periodical, <coughs> you know, what I had published in a in a fire service magazine. Today, there was another individual that had a uh, webinar on construction fire safety. This week, I'm presenting twice on the topic. I mean, it's it's growing, you know. It's becoming, for me, it's becoming daily. That's for sure. Mm. But it's just, every way you turn now, there seems to be more focal point attention. 
which pretty proud of. Okay. So I've been, we're running pretty late. Are you good on time? Are yep. we good to keep going? Okay. All right. Um, spent a lot of time on 241, and that's great because obviously a lot of people want to hear about that. But um, I think there's another piece that you're active in. You're actually in a number of other places. I don't know if we'll get to them all. But um, you also sit on the technical committee for energy storage, NFPA 855, which is interesting. This is a standard that is not in place yet. Is that the right term? I yep, guess brand new. Yeah, still so, being drafted. It's, okay, know, so this is a new standard that's going to come about as a result of the amount of energy storage systems being installed across the United States and probably internationally as well. Right. Right. The, what's what was explained to me when I got on the committee was it was spawned from the Department of Energy looking to give an industry better guidance and it kind of works out very well for me because i can kind of parallel the same kind of challenges i'm seeing on that side of it with the similar challenges in 241 so it's worked out well but energy storage um, was a brand new document that the nfpa standards council was chosen or directed or asked however you want to word it they could explain it a lot better than me to put something together that would assist an industry on how to install, maintain, decommission energy storage systems. It was asked to model 853, which was for fuel cells, mm -hmm. and we are the total opposite. And, you know, what I mean by that is that the way 853 had its chapters, you know, we still have our chapters, but there was no real direct correlation. They're, they're, different. they're absolutely apples and oranges. Okay. And let me, forgive me for interrupting. Yeah. No, go ahead. Um, so there might be a handful of, actually there's probably a fair amount of people, if you, they listen to this regularly, they've heard me talk about energy storage because I'm, I'm interested in it because I think it's a trend in general and not for just what we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, on massconstruction.org, I wrote something on it. You can look back to a prior podcast if you want to learn more about it. But outside of that, if you could just give folks a primer on just what is energy storage in a basic sense for people that aren't familiar. You can show them. He's hold, Yep, he's holding up his iPhone for the people that only have the the audio. Oh, the so, audio. Sorry, that's okay. But, so we're talking that's, batteries. That right? it's well, it's not it's not just batteries. Well, that's why I asked. But <laughs> there, there are there are other technologies that are able to convert a, a commodity into usable electricity. Um, I'm not up to speed with all the uh, bad language. I'm I'm not fully understanding those because I'm I got the electrical background so I understand batteries um, there's technology that's done with other chemicals um, there's a process I believe it's called flow batteries where it has two products and they use however it's done so there's no there's no electricity already there that started. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But there are two products that are able to make Great. electricity. Okay. Um, I guess it you know, points back. I, I understand that with fuel cells. Mm -hmm. I know with the hydrogen fuel selling that we have going on here locally, converting natural gas into usable electricity at the end mm -hmm. of the day. So I'm familiar with a little bit of that. But um, that's really it. 
Energy storage is nothing new for folks that have ever seen your large um, AT&T and Verizon um, centers, you know, the high-rise buildings that have the antennas off them. They have a whole boatload of lead acid mm -hmm. that was put in place as a backup so they would be redundant should they lose their normal power. And that's essentially what... That's one use of energy storage. Mm -hmm. It could be used as you lose your normal power and you have battery power in reserve and it could you know, power your home here. Um, one concept that California and New York, if we're staying in the United States, the way they look at it is using batteries as a direct relationship with normal power. So when we get into those peak periods, yep. the batteries will avoid brownout conditions. You know, most mm -hmm. folks probably can relate and hear that term. But that so at peak periods, and then in the off peak, the batteries will take that power and convert it and to you know put it back into storage. A lot of work has gone on throughout the industry expanding on where we are with photovoltaics mm -hmm. um, you know, we will see a lot more photovoltaics and batteries be hand in hand um, mm. that's just how that's going to work you know, see that with a lot of those zero emission buildings yeah um, you might have a different term for it but the, yeah. the go green the ones that net zero net zero emission yeah thank yeah. you yeah. Uh, you'll see that where they'll have photovoltaic and that will go into um, storing battery power. And they're trying to solve the issue of you, you don't, the sun can be shining and you don't need power. And then the sun could not be there and you do need power. So well, the real, by capturing that yes. energy, you can use it when you need it. That That's yeah. one way. In the basic, real yeah. issue is looking way, way beyond that. Eventually we will have zero fossil fuels. Well, you know, we've polluted so mm -hmm. much so it's to avoid the pollutants. Right. It's to make the current electrical grids more resilient. Mm -hmm. um, it's to fill gaps that needed to be filled, you know, yeah. the storms and getting the customers back on during things like that. Mm -hmm. There's a much larger picture way beyond you and yeah. I. You should listen to, um, I just did a podcast with Jesse Conklin from Bond who does... Um, Predominantly, all, all he's ever worked on is cogens, um, and you know, a lot of that has to do with resiliency. It's worth. I, I think you'd find it really interesting. There's some overlap with energy storage, um, but from why does the NFPA care about it? What's the fire? What's the, the fire service or well, fire hazard concerns? Okay. Well, like, yeah. The NFPA, yes has fire service interest but it's not all fire service it, it, right. it's all it's all inclusive in the nfpa being on the high platform they were the only ones that could be able to handle putting mm -hmm. a document together you know they have right. enough resources and enough um uh, infrastructure I guess. yeah right. you know right. enough legacy mm -hmm. you know so they could handle something like this so that's 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 why the mm -hmm. nfpa um but what's the risk, though? So there's all these batteries going in. Why, like, why is that oh. any different than I'm putting a shed in my backyard? Well, here's where we're at, is that we, as usual, we have technology that's way ahead of us. 
and we don't have enough data. And that's where the real risk is. And this is where, and I'm not faulting one particular area of energy storage or the battery community, but this is what is being learned with the lithium ion technology is that it's, and sadly, the lithium ion technology has had a couple of black eyes, the hoverboards and, you know, issues with charging and the um, Samsung te telephones. It, that That's not enough to destroy a whole industry. Mm -hmm. So they recognize and they try to do their part and they're constantly working on improving the batteries. Mm -hmm. It's just their genetic makeup. How do I word it? It... By default, if there's an issue with the battery, when it gets to a point of no return, it's called thermal runaway. Mm -hmm. When it gets there, there's no pulling it back. And trying to actually extinguish the fire is a pretty big challenge. Mm -hmm. That's what's concerning for the fire service side of it. Um, that's, you know, that, that's what we're learning there. Yeah, and you think about it, right? How many stories have you read where laptop catches on fire or catches on fire on a plane? Right. Um, we locally had that fire on the 25th floor over a weekend. They were uh, charging lithium-ion batteries, right. right, on a construction site. 25 right. stories up, the, now the building's on fire, and how did it happen? Lithium-ion. So, right. yeah, there's an inherent fire risk there with the with the product. Right. Um, it's minuscule, but on the grand scheme of things. But I think what you're saying is when you have the batteries back to back to back to back, if once one of them goes, all of them start going? Well, there's a potential. Yeah. There's absolutely a potential. And that's some of the stuff that we're trying to help the industry with and work with the industry on keeping things separate. So if there is, and they want to see it too, because they don't want to lose a whole system. I mean, if, if you look on a much larger scale, I mean, the complete island of Samoa, is completely powered by storage. Hmm. It's PV and storage. Um, Hawaii, Hawaii had a failure. Germany had a failure of large scale, you know, properties. Hmm. And because for the fire service side, at least the one that was in Hawaii, the Hawaiian Fire Department chose not to do anything to mitigate because that stigma that comes along oh it's electrical and water and electric and all that stuff you yeah, know so we're working on it, uh, believe it or not <laughs> water can extinguish electrical fires pretty um controllable you know it, it can it can work to control an electrical fire it's just how the water is delivered and the one thing is breaking up the water pattern when you mm -hmm. can break up those molecules and those droplets and get it to a more of a cooling effect. The issue with the lithium ion is they don't cool. They're not going to be, you can't, it's, it's a very difficult commodity to get to cool it down that mm. way. So that's, that's the yeah. issue. And that's why the fire service has. And now I'm only stealing what you've said to me in the past, which is there's all these questions to solve, which is you respond, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, in Hawaiian fire services decided not to put water on it so is it an electrical fire is it a, a hazardous chemical fire mm. uh, like wh what are you what are you dealing with well, and now funny you mentioned that because that's that's a newer concept is finally i've always felt this way for years in the electrical side of it but actually looking at electricity as a hazardous material hmm. because it comes with its makeup side of it 
you know, even though when the lithium ion ion batteries are in their state to use for for consumer use, they're no longer that chemical hazard as raw lithium ion is. But they still have the when they start burning and they're burning the plastics and what gets released into the environment, you know, on the oh, gases. Great questions, yeah. And they, you know, if the gases are contained, they make up mixtures that could be explosive. So that's what the fire service, and that's why we have some reservations on not allowing in high-rise buildings, on roofs of high-rise, you know. It, it's well out of fire service reaches, and, you know, until we get more data, data. For, to get folks comfortable on this, um, at least on the fire service side. You know, of course, there's a lot of folks in the industry that are very ready to say, no, I, there's no issue. Yes, you know, they can throw them in, go, yeah. Right, but... I got to say, I have to say, with the folks that have been on this committee, um, they've, from the manufacturer side of it, they've really opened their arms and embraced and wanted to hear fire service concerns. Hmm. And I think it's, you know, they're looking at it too. I would imagine that it's a reflection on them. You know, they don't want to have failures. You know, they want to be able to explain, you know, what our product is and assist us. So it's been a very good, you know, good handshakes going on. No, it's good. And I think some of the other things you end up solving is, like you started to allude to, can it be inside? I mean, does it have to be outside? Can it be inside? Is a roof considered outside? Um, does it need a fire rating? Do you need to use a chemical system to put it out? Can you use a right. water-based system? Like um, we've chatted before about when you have racks of batteries, now, how do you get sprinkler coverage when you've got all these racks and right. you can't get the coverage on it? It's almost like think of bookshelves, right? And they're closely together. How do you get a sprinkler head to cover all right. that? Um, Working on that now with a particular project of having a perforated racking system so the water can get through. Yeah, yeah. So through. My, I don't want to say biggest concern, but I'll, I'll throw it out there. It's the who's going to enforce it because... What we're looking at now is an NFPA standard. Now, does that inherently mean it's going to be a fire service enforcer behind it? Don't know. Mm -hmm. Are the electrical inspectors that customarily look at wiring systems, are they going to be have enough knowledge in this area to be comfortable or to also be able to recognize... For something else, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know where the building officials are going to be in this. Um, oh. And then there's a lot of moving parts that are taking place because there's language now that just got into the newer electrical code that covers, and it's in the 700 chapters. I forget the exact number, but it's up there, and it covers energy storage systems. Now, is that all the electrical inspectors going to see and stop at? So if we have 855 and we have things that talk about decommissioning systems, fire protection of systems, who's going to look at that? And then who's going to have enough technical knowledge or even non-technical knowledge to be able to enforce that? That, I think, is a much bigger question ahead of us as we go forward, at least here in Massachusetts. I don't, I'm not sure who's going to pick, be able to, to, to do that. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You, you've got electrical inspector. You have fire services, you have building inspector with fire protection, fire alarm, you have, there's just overlap everywhere. And here's the problem, which is 
we're talking about lithium ion in six months when there's a new battery technology out and then 12 months after that there's another technology out like how are you keeping up right you know i mean i think the code's going to struggle we have i think this particular committee is going to meet quite frequently and discuss things like that over the next five to ten years um sure and we do have reserve chapters with the likelihood there will be another technology. Hmm. Right now, the industry seems pretty stable. You know, there's the nickel cadmiums, there's the sodiums, we have the flow batteries, and then we have the lithium ions. We have pretty much the technologies are all revealed. There's no real, nobody's saying I'm going to be, yes, there's nobody working in a, a, a chemistry lab at MIT coming up with a, a new concoction. Mm-hmm. They're just going to be variations of the existing, you know, genetic makeups, the, co- the, the cocktails that are there now. But mm-hmm. you're right. Who knows? We, you know, somebody's going to figure out, oh, I can make energy storage or grind in that piece of wood, you know, or whatever the case is. Somebody will figure something out. Mm-hmm. And so, and just like, as you know, Mr. Kelly, in the code and certainly in the code enforcement side, we're always playing catch up because we're already going to have a document that should be released by the end of this year, and yes, it'll already be outdated, you know, yeah. whether it, how it gets referenced through a building code. Um, I know the ICC has um, has put language. I just don't know what edition of their code, but there's language in there, and it's all trying to, you know, correlate. Um, the IFC has some stuff. The NFPA 1 already had stuff. I believe it was Chapter 53. Mm-hmm. That goes away, um, and it's just going to, because, you know, NFPA 1 is an extract document anyway, but I guess that will just make reference right to 855. Mm-hmm. So now does that, because the fire service here in Massachusetts enforces NFPA 1, will that make it the fire service? And then will we have... Code conflict between the building code exactly. and... Exactly. Yep. All those you know, problems. So we, so we got a long way to go in that. I think the industry, I don't want to say it will self-correct. I think that ship is running pretty well. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad that there's there's something out there to have some eyes that are on this as these systems. I don't want to say that they've been more popular. I just think there's going to be a silent, rapid growth. They're just going to just keep showing up. And slowly yeah. and surely, they're going to just, here they are, here they are, here they are. And again, if we don't have the enforcers out of it, communicating and, and knowing and sometimes the left hand and the right hand, you know, now, does that mean necessarily that the fire service has got a, a big concern that if you put six, eight, 12 batteries with a mine, but if you hung them on a wall in your basement, is that going to be changed the way we think? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But in freestanding generation plants, that's a little bit of a game changer, you know, and how yeah. we're looking at stuff. Yeah. I mean, you have the Tesla battery packs, right? That the power are, walls. The power like walls that. that are going in residential right you know it's funny you mentioned that because you probably heard me comment on it before um as i was just returning from my first day of committee in 2017 an individual that i just happened to run into an end user consumer on the residential a single family home she already knew about the product she already knew what she was going to do i'm going to put pv on my roof and i'm going to put my batteries right here so you can see that consumers know, but yet us, we we're caught in the middle of this industry, still got a lot of catching up to do. Um, but the NFPA, it's an NFPA-sponsored program, and they received a grant to put it together, and they had some top-notch professionals work on this, a couple of them that actually work on committee with me. 
and they come up with something. It's more stemmed for the fire service to explain it. And it was a good tie-in because they, they didn't just do standalone energy storage. They tied it in with PV. So mm-hmm. to bring back PV so we don't forget that yep. and downplay it because now we have energy storage thinking that PV goes away, but how PV is supportive into the energy storage system and how fire service, how we should look at it and respond to it and mitigate it and things like that. So, All right. Let's just finish up with something local. Um, you're, uh, I want to say, first vice president at the Fire Prevention Association of Massachusetts. Yes. Kind of commonly referred to as FPAM. Yes. Um, what does that organization do? What's kind of their, what's their goal? What is it? Um, and then is it something that people locally can get involved with? Like, is, you know, how, how does that, how does it play out? Right. Oh, thank you. Yes, currently I am the first vice president of the statewide association called FPAM, Fire Prevention Association of Massachusetts. It was spawned back in 1974. It was, and still is, a gathering of folks in the fire enforcement community and the target by making it statewide was to get all 351 communities to participate that's you're never going to get everybody but we've got a lot of them i think our current membership is i want to say well well above 200 and you know of course it's going to be multiple folks from one community Mm -hmm. you know but nonetheless we have great great um, organization and that was, again, it was put together from what I can envision, because I wasn't there then, of folks in one community struggling with the laws that were in place and the codes that were in place in the time and how another community was dealing with it. And they didn't know how to deal with it. And it was a resource. Hey, how are you handling you learn smoke detectors? Or mm-hmm. how are you handling... Uh, a sprinkler law and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, it, 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 in the logo, it talks about, oh, geez, engineering, enforcement, and education. Those mm-hmm. are the, like the, the three points there. Um, the sure anybody can be a member. Currently, predominantly, though, it's all fire service mm-hmm. representatives. 90, yeah, 95 There's, plus percent. Yeah, yeah. And probably even 99 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, we do have some building officials that do come. Uh, what, what, it's good and bad. Um, most of our monthly meetings are in the central part of the state. So that's great on one level because you get people not complaining that I have to travel from Pittsfield to go to Boston yeah. and vice versa. But it also has a negative draw to it too because then you folks that are in the urban settings yeah or down the cape or whatever yeah. It's all. yeah we actually had one individual she would fly over from nantucket wow. and then she drove up so but i you know but you know there is you know folks that are willing to do that um we 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 make them fun um we make them with purpose our monthly meetings their educational sessions we mm-hmm. we have certain ones throughout the year that I piggybacked so we can get a, a morning and an afternoon educational session. It's talking everything from current events to talking about things that have been around forever. And what I mean by current events, like new code trends yep. and things from the past, smoke detectors, 
and you've heard me talk about smoke detectors before, Mr. Kelly. Uh, you know, we've had a smoke detector mandate in this state for 45 plus years, and I don't. Nobody intended it to work out this way, but the end user still a lot of confusion. And, you know, some things that took place in the middle of that as code changes and how things, great things found their way into code, but then the code addition would change and something would either get omitted or something else was added that ended up being taken away. But nonetheless, um, sticking with the FPAM side of it, that's the organization. Anybody can be a member. Um, there's information at massfpm.org. My goal is when I make president uh, come the first of the year is to at least double our membership. Um, I know you've heard me talk about that in the past. I don't know how I'm going to do that, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I think more podcast is a good start. Podcast, get the taking, word out. Yeah, taking advantage of technology, things like that, hmm. um, and we'll see where it takes us. Yeah, I think you guys have a pretty. Uh, I've looked at the um, the agenda for this year, but so you do an annual meeting. And what is it, Sturbridge or Southbridge? Southbridge? It, it, it bounces they back bounce and back. forth. Um, okay. It's, again, usually in the uh, middle part of the state. It has traveled. It's been a roadshow before. But it seems to get, the middle part of the state seems to get a more uniform turnout mm-hmm. from the folks in the state. And, yes, uh, we do run an annual conference. Uh, it's not similar to, but it's sort of on the lines of the NFPA conference it's the Society of Fire Protection Engineers mm-hmm. annual thing that they do. It's not to take away. It's to, it, it, they're totally separate events, but it's while people are thinking mm-hmm. fire prevention, well, here's a, a good you know plan for that. And it works out. It, it's done in the spring because that's when, again, you're going to keep folks coming yeah. before you lose people in the summer and you know nobody really wants to do things in the winter uh, you know, with the holidays and stuff like yeah. that. But it's a good time for that. Um, it is done. It, this one's at the Southbridge Conference Center, which mm-hmm. is an old eyeglass factory. Cool. Um, and, and then I think next year we'll be looking at Sturbridge. Okay. Again. Yeah. And the content is it's great. Uh, I would say 60% of it is relevant to um, construction folks. Yeah. As well as some of it is just straight fire services stuff that might be, you know, when you're responding to a fire, how do you access or whatever? Okay, I'm not going to, I might find it interesting, but it's not right. necessary for me. But um, some of the things I saw is fire rated duct work. Uh, this year we're doing NFPA 241. So th- there's a fair amount of stuff for um, fire protection engineers, construction fire safety folks. Um, so it's worth looking at. You already said the website, so check that out May 6th and 7th and let us know. Maybe you'll see us there. Oh, yes. Um, and then I'm I'm just going to go ahead and just because of time purposes, um, do my usual last two questions, which is, um, over the next 12 months or so, okay, we don't have to be too particular. Um, what do you think we're going to see more of and what do you think we'll see less of? I'll, I think more of the two topics we discussed today would be increase in energy storage. I just think, again, that's going to be a silent increase. And I think you'll see a lot more diligence, vigilance when it comes to construction site safety. I think the, the industry um, will have a much better buy-in. And, you know, they'll, they'll look at themselves and they'll say, yeah, we actually want to do this. 
as they go forward. So I think we'll see good increases, impacts on those. Yeah. And I think if folks listen to the previous podcast, I did on energy storage, there's a lot of reasons why, when you say it becomes, why it's going to be a silent increase. And it has to do with cost. It has to do with tax credits, incentives, goals that are being put in place. Um, there's a lot of, there's an undercurrent there that are going to encourage like the Massachusetts, we have goals to have so many gigawatts of power and energy storage by 2030 or whatever the date right. is. So there's there's a lot of um, public will and intention to get behind more right. energy storage. So I think you're I think you're spot on there. Right. And I think the way that market is going to run is similar to like today. You you decide you need a new car. Well, your next new car is going to be a hybrid or it's going to be full electric. Mm-hmm. And I think people are going to well, all right, I'm going to do this today. Well, geez. I know this is available, and I'm just going to have XYZ solar and... And never have to fill up my gas tank again, yeah. Yeah, right. Yep. You know, I think that's where the increases will come. That's what I mean by silent. Hmm. Okay, awesome. Well, Chris, thank you. We uh, appreciate you coming by. I felt like we covered a wide scope, and I think people probably learned a lot, so I really appreciate you coming by. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Hopefully you'll have me back. Will do. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Hey, everyone. Can't thank you enough for listening to the show. Uh, Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you loved what you heard. Um, If you did, if you wouldn't mind heading over to SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever it is that you listen, and give us a rating. It would help us to get heard, which would be huge. Keep this thing going. Um, If you want to get more involved, head over to massconstruction.org. You can see what we do there. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook, all from that page whatever your medium is that you prefer. Uh, And last thing I got to say is thank you, thank you, thank you.